Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mikla Benson. In today's episode, I'm joined in the studio again by Professor Karen O'Reilly. Karen has been working with me on the project. She has been down in the south of Spain conducting interviews with British people who have made their homes and lives there. And this builds on a career spanning 25 years of talking with these populations about their decision to migrate and about what everyday life is like for them living in Spain. In today's episode, we're going to talk about an earlier paper that she wrote, a paper from the early 2000s that reflects on how the British in Spain think about their migration and think about the lives that they're living there. The main purpose of this paper was to demonstrate that precisely some of the ambivalences that are at play in the way that they understand their lives are also at play in Britain's relationship to Europe more generally. So I think it's a really good intervention in terms of thinking through how we might understand what British people living in Europe at this point in time think about Brexit and how this might reflect the Brexit divide in the UK more generally particularly on the, along the lines of what people believe Europe represents and what Britain's relationship is to it. If you want to find out more about this paper, you can read the show notes for this episode. But you might also want to look at Karen's recent blog, which is entitled Doing the Hokey Cokey. Anyway, I'll hand over to Karen to tell you a little bit more about the paper. Yeah, so I've I've gone back to this paper just yesterday and had another read, and it's really been really eye-opening how much of what's written in there still makes sense. The main argument is that what I've been really trying to understand with British people in Spain is this incredible ambivalence about where they live, about where they come from, about Europe, about you know who they are and and their sense of belonging really so a kind of embracing of of spanishness embracing of spain mixed with a kind of um running down of britain wanting to get out of britain well, i've called it the sort of bad britain good spain discourse you know spain sums up everything good and britain is everything bad kind of thing but that's very crude and it's very crude because there are all sorts of things tangled up with that um, and what I've said is in this in this paper that there's some mirroring of the British in Spain with Britain's attitude to Europe as a whole. Um, I'm going to start by just saying I apologise for using Britishness as a sort of shortcut to all sorts of overlapping identities. And I'm aware that I'm doing that and I don't have time to go into that now. So that's just a kind of excuse. But what I what I said in this paper that is that you could see this sort of sense of paternalism, of benevolence, of superiority that characterised the colonial era and beyond in some of the British people in Spain. Now, it was very subtle, very disguised, but it was revealed in all sorts of ways, such as the fact that they could hire Spanish people to do their gardening or their housework sometimes, and the way they spoke about those people, the relationships they had with those people. 
Um, it came out sometimes in, in the frustrated way that they spoke about local politics, sometimes as if they were talking about annoying children. It's a sort of patronizing way. It came out in the charities and organizations they set up as if they were there to correct some of the wrongs in Spanish society. So they've set up um, charities for orphan children and charities for abandoned animals. This sort of behaviour was much more common among the upper middle classes and some ex-military elite. So I'm not talking about everybody and I'm not even talking about everybody in those categories. But I have to tell you, one person even told me the Spanish have got a lot of catching up to do, you know. And another one said, they are so backward in so many ways. If only they would learn from us. Some expats have been very important people in their own countries. They could teach these youngsters a thing or two. <laughs> and they were talking about, talking about after a meeting with representatives of the local Partido Popular. So for many of these earlier people moving to Spain, the visitors and the settlers, Spain conjured up for them or meant for them a sun, sea, sand, relaxed way of life, a calm way of life. And what they were doing was they were sort of equating Spain as somewhere to escape to, but also implicitly somewhere backward. It's quaint. It's like Britain used to be in the 50s, and it's slower and simpler and safer and more community-minded. And you know this has a somewhat sort of superior and paternalistic tone. And somebody actually said in so many words, it's like Britain was in the 50s. Everyone knows each other and helps each other out. As well as that, they took it for granted that their migration, not that they called it that, was a good thing. And they would talk about how their migration, you know, brought growth and prosperity to areas that were run down. And and another aspect of this is, is talking about themselves, as many of the sort of early colonials talked about themselves as pioneers who were brave. They were the ones who made the move and made a new life for themselves and paved a trail for others. And they would talk about other people who want to do it, but but weren't brave enough to do it, didn't have the courage to do such a thing. Yeah, these are all themes that are very familiar. I'm listening back to you and, and remembering my own work in France um, and thinking about how our understandings or how things might have changed since that time. Because obviously this was a paper written in 2002, sorry, published in 2002, so it was probably written a little bit earlier than that, based on research that you conducted in, I guess, the late 1990s, that one, the, mm. the research mm. for that would have been based on. So do you want to reflect a little bit on, on what might have changed? Before I do that, <laughs> I'm actually going to be to correct that vision I've just given you a little bit. Because even way back then, I was actually saying, yes, did they mirrored this sort of colonial attitude. But they also, and this ambivalence I've always had struggled to get hold of with the British abroad, this sort of double-sidedness to them. But because you could also see a mirroring of the colonial critique as well. So you, and, and, and with that, attempts to be reflexive. So the much of that that I've just described to you was also tempered all the time 
um, through newspaper articles, through comments in, in newspapers, but also in, in everyday language, just talking to people. And they would tut at people who had that kind of attitude and complain about it and grumble and say things like, we need to remember we're guests here, you know. Um, again, really migrants. Uh, we need to be respectful of, of our hosts. And they would talk about, you know, how much they try to integrate. Most of the people I met did try to learn the language before eventually giving up, and not everyone gave up. They would really embrace their children's ability to learn the language more and to mix more. So, you know, I don't want to just give this idea that they were all like stuffy old ex-colonials with this, you know, paternalistic superior attitude it was corrected and it was um there was the other side of that you know the embracing of, of spanish culture and the embracing of, a, of a, a spanish way of life in a way i'm thinking about um the paper that we gave in brighton at a conference recently um so for those of you who don't know karen and i have another hat as well <laughs> we write together very frequently and the other hat is that we've been writing a book together about british people who moved to malaysia and north americans who moved to panama and our our argument there is to do with the extent to which colonial legacies feed into um inadvertently actually into the way that people behave so i think that that's probably quite a useful a useful intervention towards saying okay yes there might be there may be some people who as you discovered in spain behave in a way that we think is is more reminiscent of that colonial way of being but there are also other people who are far more ambivalent about it who are aware of that history who are aware of that legacy and who seek to resist it rather than to reproduce it um so let's fast forward shall we so yeah the point is i suppose that that part of that colonial legacy is also a post-colonial legacy and a post-colonial critique and that's also reflected in in the people we speak to and their behaviors and so there are those who, who as i say you know are trying to integrate and are trying to see things in a different way okay again i'm going to stick with this double-edged sword now into the future so bear with me for a little while while i just sort of Take you along one side of this. Okay, so now, well, you know, I'm talking like 25 years since I did my first research there, so obviously things have changed. There has been a lot more settlement. You know, some of these children who went to school and learned Spanish are now grown up and working in Spanish companies. There's a lot more integration, a lot more openness, a lot less of, of the superiority. As I say, just I'm just going to stick with one side of that sword, though, for a little while. Because one thing that I've noticed is that when you interview people about Brexit, there is their their sense of despair does sometimes come out a bit like a sense of righteous indignation that is reminiscent of this superiority, of this rightfulness. There's a tone, why are we being asked to choose where we live? Why aren't we allowed to live where and move where we want. Why is this happening to us? They don't say, you know, we're different. We're not like other migrants, not in so many words, but it's kind of implicit. You know, when they're saying things like, I never thought about whether I was British. I never thought about whether I was European. I didn't have to think about it. They are really revealing this this sense of security, this sense that, you know, this British paternalism included them. It, it, you know, they assumed 
that the British government would look after them. And so this sense of despair, I think, it, you know, we can somehow link back to this sense of, of safety and security and, and righteousness in the world in a way. But I do also want to say that, you know, many, many people have they've settled, they've made long-term Spanish friends, they've, uh, as I've said in a, in a recent paper for the Nordic Journal of Migration Research, They've integrated in diverse ways from simply having a sense of place, a sense of routine, a sense of home, um, and in some cases not necessarily having much to do with Spanish society, but still a sense of, of home and, and permanence. And then as well, there are those who are you know married to Spanish people with children who are half Spanish, people heavily involved in Spanish businesses, in politics. People for whom Spain now doesn't just mean quaintness and backwardness. People for whom now Spain means development, change, dynamism, growth, creativity, ideas, intellect, a country with a place in the 21st century. And, you know, we've, we've seen this as well, haven't we, in, in our respondents right across Europe, you know, we were just talking about it this morning that our respondents speak many languages, they're married to, to Europeans, they've got mixed nationality families, they're working in European companies, establishing exciting companies. And then we were, you know, getting involved in local community life, political life, and we were laughing about the ones um, nicely about, you know, people telling us they're learning Sevillana or Canarian folk dance and things like that, as well as the language. And, you know, I, I think I want to end by saying, you know, these people who had, who are embracing otherness and we were beginning to see through them a new relationship in Britain towards the rest of the world, a cosmopolitanism, a humility about Britain, an openness about other cultures, a mixing of skills, knowledge, ideas, a dynamism, as well as mixing of marriages. And just as this was happening, Brexit comes along and pulls the rug out from under their feet. There's really a lot there to think about. I mean, certainly one of the things that's really struck me um, and that I've written about on the basis of the research in the lot is that real shift towards uh, what people refer to as being European. That's, that's a contrast to what people were saying before when I was in France in the early 2000s, when it did seem rather flippant, actually, when you asked them, oh, well, you know, how come you're here? Well, I'm European, I've got the right to be here. Or, you know, when you asked them a little bit more about what that meant then, it really was about um, freedom of movement. And, and that was the depth of it. But it does seem now that things have changed and that they've shifted. Um, and that that is a, an identity that people feel quite keenly, I think, um, in contrast to what it was before. And I think that you've presented a very hopeful and a very optimistic in interpretation of it. And But perhaps also it's a reflection of the increasing integration of Europe, whereas when we based our research previously, Europe socially was was not as integrated as as we might consider it today. So so there are those dimensions, there are those sides to it too. That you know Europe um, is aging. The European Union, sorry, is aging as a European project. It's it's bedding in. Perhaps we've been picking up on that too, and its impact on the lives of those British people that we've worked with previously, as much as 
Britain within the European Union has perhaps changed its relationship to Europe um, over that period of time on the interim. So thank you very much, Karen. That's been that's been really, really fascinating. You're welcome. And um, it's, it's certainly a fascinating thing to study. And I think I would just like to to end with this sense of this this ambivalence or this double-edged sword um, that, you know, it really does seem to me that the British abroad mirror this Brexit divide and that we don't have to see it as solely a negative thing or, or simply that it's a divide that there are those on this side or those on that side. Actually, we're probably all affected by these various different threads in our past um, and, and in our present lives. And this may help us to understand sort of this strangeness that is Brexit. That's great, Karen. And for those of you who are interested in reading Karen's paper, we will put a link up to where that is available on the internet, hopefully not behind a paywall so that most people can actually read it. But yes, do get in touch if you have any questions. Um, And of course, this is a work in progress, our work on what Europe means to British people um, living in the EU 27 is it's definitely these are just initial reflections that we're that we're drawing out now. Um, but thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. If you've enjoyed what we've been talking about today and want to find out more, check out our website www.brexitbritsabroad.com or you can follow us on social media via Twitter at Brexpats EU and on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And I'll speak to you again soon.